look at Esther 5. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to be very helpful in showing us who Jesus is a little bit more clearly. And it starts off this way. On the third day, this is three days after they were fasting and readying themselves. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace, and when she saw, or when, <clears throat> and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Okay. Esther was about to do something pretty ridiculous when you think about it. All right, I want to just remind you, her people group, her nation, they're getting ready for extinction. The date's already been put on the calendar of when all the Jews over 127 provinces will be wiped out. And she is going to petition the king to reverse that. But remember, he sent out an edict, and those are irreversible, right? No takebacks once an edict has been sent out. So she's going to ask him to do something which is set another edict out there to reverse the edict he'd already sent out, which would make him look really stupid, make him look kind of dumb. He would have lost some reputation and some leadership capital during a time that it was already pretty low. I just want to remind you, he's fresh back from a battle where he lost yet again to the Greeks. This guy needed a win or two, and this isn't a win what Esther's about to ask. Also, it's going to give a very firm appearance, maybe, that maybe the king doesn't have control of his own household, that he had something he wanted to do. In fact, remember the edict he sent out in chapter 1, which said, across the whole land, all 127 provinces, all of Persia, all women are supposed to do what the man says, right? And all the men are supposed to take control of the whole house. I mean, this, this is what's happening in this edict, but what does this look like? Looks like the king's head is being turned by the queen. It's almost a spit in the face of this edict that they had sent out in the first chapter. It would also cost him a lot of money. You'll remember from last week that Haman was going to give 10,000 talents of silver. Let me just put that into perspective for you. It's easy to miss this. That's 400 tons. 400 tons of silver. Current cash value for that much silver today, $250 million. Right? What do you think it was back then? It was a lot more back then. We're talking over a quarter of a billion dollars. This guy is going to give up if he listens to the queen. Also, Esther would have to go ahead and reveal her secret that she has kept for five years. For five years now, she's kept a secret that she was a Jew. 
And she's about to say, hey, listen, the joke's on you. I've been keeping something from you. I'm not Persian after all. I'm Jewish. So just think about what's going on. This is no small petition. High likelihood this king is going to look inept, lose a ton of money, feel embarrassed maybe, lie to, fooled, all in a season where he really, really needs a win. And this is not going to get one. This is a huge ask. And she's moving forward to do something like this without some big miracle or sign that other Old Testament saints got. No burning bush for her. No dream in the middle of the night for her, right? No pillar of fire to lead her straight to the king. She is just left to conjure the best strategy she could come up with and that God has given her. We're going to see how that works here in a minute, right? But in fact, from this point forward, you're going to start to see Esther's character change in this story. Notice that she's been referred to as Queen Esther for the first time. Scholars and fans of this book notice a smooth evolution of Esther's character, where in the beginning she was just this naive girl plucked out of her, of her life and thrown into a, a Persian harem, and now she's becoming more and more queen-like, right? more dignified, more mature, more courageous. We even see here that she's putting on royal robes. It mentions that because it wants you to catch that. So when she shows up, she is supposed to be in royal stature, because this is what God has placed her in, one of royal position. The king is going to see her differently now. That's why he calls her Queen Esther. This is not just a girl in a harem anymore. She's also pretty wise in this moment because she knows with this guy, this king, the direct approach, not ever really the best approach. Not with him. So she, she instead uses subtlety and meekness, which are attributes this king loves in his women. For them to be meek, and for them to be subtle. That's why you find her saying things like, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, right? Or if it pleases the king. You can see what she's doing here. And you can almost catch a little bit of the architecture of the throne room, right? Almost, because it's as if he's sitting on his throne and kind of sees through the corner of his eye that she's standing in another room and just kind of waves her on in. And then she comes in and they have a little bit of a talk. And it's almost as if you could take a deep breath because the challenge is over. The risk is done. She's obviously not going to get killed, right? So it's almost like you could take a deep breath and just enjoy the rest of the story. But the drama just seems to linger because the king still doesn't know what's going on. She's given an opportunity to say, listen, Mordecai's a problem. He's put out an edict where all of my people die, right? I mean, here's a full disclosure if I was in her shoes, I think I would have just made the ask right there in the throne room. I don't know about all the feasts. I don't know that I would have done that. After all, the king said, I'll give you anything, even up to half of my kingdom. Which is something that people would say back then, well, kings would say. It doesn't mean that you're going to get half of the kingdom. It's just a, another way of saying, it doesn't matter what the price tag is, I'll give you whatever you want right now. You just name it, it's yours. It's just another cute way of saying that. But if that's the case, why does she not just deal with it right there? Why a feast? Why, why prolong it? It looks like she's stalling. She's kicking the can down the street a little bit, right? But I want you to consider how smart this is, bringing intrigue into it, bringing food into it, first of all, right? That's a great way to have a discussion. It's a hard one. So she says, come to a feast. I'm all in, right? But then even after her not saying what it's about twice, if I was the king, I'd just be dying to know what's going on. 
What is going on? She keeps just saying that she's going to tell us and she doesn't tell us. Now I've got to know. Think of how smart that is because it's also becoming more and more public. That Esther has something big to say, big news, and feast is followed by feast. It's going to be really hard for him to say no because it's becoming more public. It's really smart, right? I think it is. Seems like she's playing chess and these guys are playing checkers at this point in the story. Right? She's wise and strategic according to her plans and God's plans. And they're both working at the same time, at the same place, and they do not nullify each other. This is a very, very big piece of doctrine. It will be helpful for us in a minute, but it's important for us to know that it's tempting. It's tempting for me. It's tempting for you very possibly to think that when we plan and make decisions, that those don't really collaborate with God whenever he's planning and he makes decisions, Right? It's hard for us to put those both in the same sentence. Either God is in total control, and therefore I'm not, or I am in total control, and therefore God is not. So either I'm a a puppet with no free will to make decisions, or God gives me this free will, but he just kind of watches powerlessly from outside the fishbowl. He's just watching, right? I think the problem in this is how we see free will. It's a phrase we use all the time, and I think that's where we start to stumble when it comes to big pieces of doctrine like this. Free will, whenever we use the phrase, has come to mean the ability to make decisions without being influenced. Without being influenced, right? But if that's our definition of free will, then no one in this room has free will. Whether you love God or not, listen, if you're in here and you're just skeptical, just checking things out, I mean, if your ability to make a decision without being influenced, if that's what free will is, you don't have it either. Nobody in the room does. I mean, very simply, all of our decisions are influenced. There has never been a decision made on planet Earth that happened in a sterile vacuum without influence leaning on that decision in one way, shape, or form. I mean, from big to small, doesn't matter what you're deciding on, doesn't matter what you are executing in your mind, there is an influence. It might be internal, it might be external. Listen, if you had a Patriots jersey on last week, right? Why did you wear that jersey and not a Rams one? Congratulations, by the way, right? But why that jersey? You didn't do it because you just decided in a vacuum of non-decision that you would choose one over the other. You were influenced, you wanted to. I wanted the Patriots to win. I wanted to see the old guy get another ring. I wanted to see that, right? Why do we make the decisions we make? If you're driving on the interstate and you see a a patrol car kind of do that thing where they kind of just come in behind you, they're sneaky, right? They come right behind you and you look up in your rearview mirror and then there's a patrol car. What do you do? You know better than to hit the brakes. You just take your foot off the gas, don't you? That's what everybody does, right? They know you're doing that too, by the way. Take your foot off the gas and you just kind of cruise because you might be pushing it a little bit. Why did you make that decision? Was it in a vacuum? Made that decision because of an external influence the car behind you, and the internal influence that you didn't want a ticket, right? Listen, if you decide to sin, sin against God, yourself, the person next to you, you were influenced by the flesh. This is what it says in James 1, right? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You weren't ambushed into that. You had a desire. It leaned on that decision. If you came here this morning, instead of going to the mountains, if you're keto instead of carbo, if you're Android instead of Apple or Democrat or Republican, 
Something helps you form the decisions that you make. Something does. You don't make decisions independently. Nobody does. If free will is making a decision without influence, then you don't have any and you never did. But if free will is you making decisions without being manipulated and controlled, you have that all day. You have that all day, right? Listen, Philippians 2 says it this way. Paul does a better job than I do. Philippians 2, verse 12 Therefore, Paul says to the church of Philippi, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. He's talking to you. You work it out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's working here? Looks like both. Looks like I'm working out my salvation, and someone else is working too. Looks like God is working in me, right? So we are working, and God is working at the same time, right? We're not dolls in a dollhouse, right? When I was a little kid, it was G.I. Joe figures were huge. I had a ton of them, right? One day I buried them in my backyard, and I never remembered where I put them, and I lost them forever. They're still underground somewhere in Saginaw, Texas. But I remember having those little things, and if I wanted the arm to do this, I had to push the, the dumb arm up. I mean, it just didn't do it on its own, right? That's not how we are. We're not dolls in a dollhouse mobilized against our desire. We execute decisions. We decide to do what we want, like you did today, to show up here. You're not here because you were forced or contrived into a car, crammed in there, pushed on this road to get here. You made decisions, and yet God is administrating his creation as well, and both are happening at the same time. Both, right? So yes, you have free will. You exercise a freedom in deciding what you want, just like Esther's doing here. And no, you don't make decisions independent of God's sovereign care. And yes, both can be true at the same time, right? Now, why am I spending time on this? It seems like a, seems like a footnote in doctrine almost, like a piece of doctrine that you don't really touch. Why is it important? Because I think it helps me see, maybe it helps you see that God achieves his perfect plan Yes, whenever we have the best of intentions and the best actions, but yes, also God works in and around us whenever we fumble the ball and our intentions and motivations are sick and we do dumb things. I mean, that's a major theme in this book. You cannot make enough mistakes to be outside of God's ability to work in and through and around you. That's encouraging for me to know. That's encouraging for me to know. In other words, God doesn't look at you and say, what a moron, again with the sins, again with that same thing. I wish I could use you. I wish I could get in and work in you, but I can't because you, you, you take this free will thing and you just kind of lock me up. I've got so much I want to do, but you just decide and I, I can't do anything. That's just not helpful theology. That's not even accurate theology. Friends, listen, wherever you're at theologically, if you have a theology that shrinks God and elevates man, it needs an oil change. It's not a good theology. If you find yourself seeing God in such a way where he is shorter while you grow taller, not good theology, right? Not good theology. Okay, that's a different sermon. I'm going to jump back into the text. So look at Esther 5. We're going to jump in at verse 9. Verse 9. And Haman, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And that will be the last time you see him happy, by the way. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches in number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to feast, to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew standing at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let gallows fifty cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he made the gallows. Okay, so doesn't need a lot of exegesis right here. Haman has a bit of an ego issue. You can see that, right? A little bit of a problem. You can easily pull this guy's strings by respecting him publicly or disrespecting him publicly. That's what got him riled up. I mean, you could see it even in the, the first couple verses that we read. It's as if he's looking at this invitation from Esther with a big grin on his face, only to catch Mordecai standing up in the corner and that, that turn into a frown really fast. It's, it reads as if it happens almost that quickly. I just want to jump through the passage and shake this guy and say, ignore him. Why, is he, why does he ruffle your feathers so much? He's nobody. I mean, you're second to only the king of Persia. That guy? He's got you. He gets you so riled up. It's kind of like when you see a celebrity today that has a bajillion followers on whatever medium, and then some no-name with like six followers throws a rock at him, right? Calls him out on Twitter, and then they lose everything. They lose all their composure. They respond to them aggressively, and then it becomes viral on the news the next day. Don't you just read that and you think, why? Why did you do that? They, who are they? Who are they? They don't decrease who you are. Just ignore them. But this is what happens in our hearts when our idols are triggered. I mean, Mordecai standing instead of honoring this guy, it didn't remove any power from Haman. Not one bit. And Esther's invitation to a feast, it didn't increase his authority any at all, right? But he had this hole, this unfillable hole, and he could hear the sirens singing in his ear, right? That public recognition is what he really needed. That if he had public recognition, his life would be better. And that guy's taking it away, and this girl's improving it. And that's why we're seeing what we see in this text. It's hard to feel sorry for Haman because he's such a turd, right? He's just an unlikable guy. Reading it, just reading it. But it makes you wonder, what if he just had good counsel around him? Well, I mean, think about it, just, for, just as an exercise. What if he had good, biblical, gospel-centered counsel around him? What would that have looked like right here, right? Totally speculating right now. I just think he needed somebody to maybe show him where his emotions were overpowering him, where he was over-emoting, where it was very obvious that something was riling him up, good or bad. Maybe, it was, maybe if it was a good DNA relationship like some of you guys have in here, or a good community group, people 
People around him, people not just like him either, by the way, right? People who would be selfless, people that would be frank and honest with him, with his good in mind, not just their own. Because I don't find anybody in this story saying, hey, Haman, put the mirror down for a minute, right? Just for a minute. You mean to tell me that with everything you've got, none of it is worth anything because of that guy? Like it's all worthless because of that guy? You're like a toddler, like a toddler right now, stomping your feet. You need more sleep. That's what you sound like. No one in here asking a hard question. No one in here probing motives. No one asking him why he's behaving the way he is. Why? Because he put the wrong people around him. This isn't good counsel at all. So what does he do? He whines about being dishonored, and then he starts this seemingly inappropriate thing of just naming all of his accomplishments. I mean, when you read it the first time, you're thinking, why is he doing that? It's like a toxic Facebook page right there, right? You've seen the person, they got wronged at a restaurant or wronged at a church or wronged at work or wronged with their friends, and they go and they launch all that wrongness on a a post, and then they talk about all the things, all their virtuous qualities at the same time. It's like toxic social media. That's what we're seeing right here, this rant. But if we were to stay in that quick exercise, how would you have counseled him? You're sitting on the same couch as he is. What would you say to Haman? Where would you start? Right? How would you have handled the gospel story or who God is in the midst of this? Is it hard to know? How are you speaking to the people you're around now? Are you? Right? What kind of counsel do you give to people? See, it gets real, real fast when we're able to draw a line from something like that to a line like where we're at today. I mean, we could flip it. What counsel do you keep around you? What counsel do you keep around you? Just because they like you and agree with you, by the way, doesn't mean you're going to get good counsel from them. Does not mean that. I mean, a good qualification for people to give you counsel for big decisions is who's just going to be honest. Not just who's going to be honest, who's going to share your convictions and values your worldview, who's going to lead you to see God more clearly, therefore yourself more clearly, right? Here's the hard news that some of us already know. This isn't always family, is it? It's not always family. It's rarely friends from high school. It's never Facebook where we get this kind of counsel. And so what happens? We see this den of brilliance. They come up with a very snappy action plan. One, Build gallows. How big? I don't know. How angry are you? Real angry? 75 feet. That's how, it's it's ridiculous. By the way, when it says gallows, don't think of wild, wild west, right? With a noose and everything. That's not really what it's talking about. The word gallows here is going to render more of a pole sticking out of the ground. You can use your imagination. They just put you on top of that pole, and the rest does what the rest does. But 75 feet, that's step one. Step two, Tell the king to kill Mordecai on the brand new polls. Step three, go and eat with the king and queen. Step four, update social media so that you could be seen once again and publicly recognized as a hero. You are meant to see in this passage how out of control this wounded pride is, how ridiculous and silly this is, how unfed this idol is, how it's reacting. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. 
and yet I can build bigger poles. I don't know about you. If my idols are triggered, I can be obnoxious and ridiculous and silly. I think all of us can. Beware, beware of reading a passage like this from the outside. Beware of reading how goofy this can be and not seeing a bit of it in yourself as well because we all hear the sirens singing in our ears. There's always something promising that it will make us enchanted, delighted, and wise. All of us want that. Just consider in your life, what is it that's giving you right now the strongest sense of gladness and achievement that is not Jesus? It's a possible idol. I'm not saying that it is, I'm saying it's possible. It's possible. What is it that makes you swell inside and, oh, you just couldn't be happier? That is not Jesus. It's possibly an idol. What is it that causes you to be out of proportion emotionally? Fearful, out of proportion? Anxious, angry, out of proportion to the offense? That is very likely an idol being triggered, being stroked. For Haman, we see his public recognition. This guy felt worthless without it. He felt superior with it, right? And if this recognition was threatened, he'd just go totally bananas. But if it was catered, his heart would be glad. What is it in your life that, when triggered, provokes a ton of emotion or overreaction, right? If you don't know, chew on it, and then ask somebody close to you later on, they will likely tell you the thing that you suspect that they're going to say, the thing that you hope that they don't say. It's likely what they're going to say, if they're honest. I mean, just look at a couple and how we handle them. They're typically good things, idols. We're very good at taking good things and making them ultimate things, which is all an idol is. Money. Money's a good thing. Money's a good thing, right? It's just not an ultimate thing. It's not an ultimate thing. But what does the siren tell you? The more of it you get, the safer you'll be, the more value you'll be. The more value you will contain and the safer you will be long-term if you just get more of money. And without that money, life just isn't worth living here, right? That's the siren song. But what would good counsel say to that? What would a good counselor say in a moment like that? Think about it. I mean, questions are helpful, right? What if all of your savings vanished in an instant? How would that ruin your life? Would it ruin your life? If it did, why? Right? Helping you see really what's underneath your, your deeper fears whenever those idols are being stroked. Don't just look at the Bible to see what it says on money. There's plenty of places to do that, and that is a really good thing to do. But also look to see how Jesus is better than more money here. How is Jesus the deepest treasure of all treasures that we could have here? How has he given that to us? What does the gospel say? The fact that God, as a treasure, has given himself to us, coming here to live among us, to, to walk among us, to die among us, to live again, to do this beautiful thing by drawing us in as a grafted-in family, as he gives us the Holy Spirit and intercedes for us at the right hand of God right now, that that is better than anything that money can give us. That's what good counsel will do. Over and over and over and over and over again. Social media is the same thing. Listen, I know I bag on social media a lot. I, I counted this morning. I have seven accounts, right, between the church and myself. Seven accounts is a lot. And my game is weak too, right? And I could still barely keep up with that. I think social media is a good thing. But it's not ultimate. 
But I know there are people in the room that if you're locked out of your account for two days, you'll get the shakes. Wondering what's going on. What if you fasted it for 30 days? How would that affect you? That's what good counsel would ask you. What is it giving you that the gospel speaks directly towards? And if you did give up social media, would you just start talking about yourself a whole lot because it's kind of the same thing? What would you do? That's the edge of where good counsel would start, I think, with things like, but listen, we're talking about good things made ultimate. What about your kids? Kids are great, I've got a few. I enjoy them. Kids are awesome. They're not ultimate. Kids are not ultimate. But if you come apart at the very thought that your kid might be average in this world, your kids might be an idol to you. Especially if your kid being average really means deep to you that you are average, which is why we push them as hard as we do. Might be an idol. I mean, do you see where this is going? Gaming, media, work, spouse, church. You can make an idol out of anything and they are mostly good things, taken and made ultimate things, which is why they're so hard to spot, which is why they hide and they lurk so much. And there is no task in the Christian walk, there is no task in discipleship more excruciating than putting down an idol, none. That's number one on the list, to put an idol down. Here is a quote that's a few hundred years old from William Grinnell. He says this in a, very old book. He says, soul, take your own lust, your only lust, which is the child of your dearest love, your Isaac, that sin that has caused the most joy and laughter, the one that has promised you the greatest return of pleasure or profit. Lay hands on it. Offer it up. Truly, what I'm suggesting is hard, and even flesh and blood cannot receive it. Our lusts will not lie there so patiently on the altar like Isaac or even Jesus who went to the slaughter without causing an issue. No, your sins will roar and shriek and shake and rip your heart into pieces with its hideous cries. Sounds like a Puritan, doesn't it? <laughs> but we already knew this, didn't we? We all already knew that this is what it does because of how many times we've tried to put some of our idols down and we just keep picking them back up. Or we successfully put one down and another takes its place. Because without the ultimate thing that we have in our life that is not Jesus, we fear that we'll be living a hell on earth. Haman's hell on earth is to be a nobody in this passage. To be serving other people, right? To be ignored, passed over, slighted. That's why we catch him saying in his little rant-a-thon, he says, I have nothing as long as this guy lives. I've got, how ridiculous. I have nothing as long as this guy lives. And he had everything. And he considered it as nothing because he was living in his hell on earth. When a Christian has an idol problem, it's going to sound very similar. God saves me from hell, but this thing saves me from hell on earth. Right? I like, I adore. God saves me from hell. This thing, work, kids, spouse, money, you name it, it saves me from a hellish existence here. All of this is worth nothing to me if I do not have my precious, my thing. Right now, there are sirens trying to convince us that we're not talking to them, right? Do you already hear it in your head? Something coming up, you wonder if it's an idol? Isn't it trying to convince you right now that it's not? 
Luke's not talking to you. It's okay if I'm here. I'm a good thing. He's talking to other people, dirty people, the people around you, but not you. That's what the siren sounds like. That's what an idol says. So what do we do? How do we as God's people, living in this world where idols are groomed, farmed even, accept it as totally normal? How do we live as a distinct people? How do we hear what the sirens say and not fail? I love the application for this. I truly believe that we begin by repeating daily and often in a day how perfect we are for the gospel. How, yes, how perfect the gospel is for idol makers and idol worshipers, but also how perfect an idol worshiper is for the gospel. How perfect we are for each other. I mean, just to repeat it like a broken record, to remind ourselves that in the midst of being ridiculous, building 75 foot poles, in the midst of just being silly and obnoxious and over the top, in that moment we are perfect for the gospel of grace. I think that's important because whenever we catch ourselves worshiping idols, we usually cower from God. We don't really pursue God in that moment. That's why this is important to remind ourselves with. I mean, let me just explain. When we started this book five or six weeks ago, we saw how that there would be some contrasts in this story. There would be two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of God. We saw how there would be two different kinds of feasts, the feast that was in chapter 1, these feasts, but then also the feast that God is preparing for those whom he loves. We would see that there were two different rescuers, how Esther was going to be a tool of rescuing her people, but Jesus would be a better Esther. We also have two kings, though. We have a king that we don't have to cower from. We have a king that we don't have to wait for permission to address, but we have constant free access. There is an open-door policy for those who live in Christ. We don't have to cower. We don't have to hesitate. We could go in with all of our dirty with us. All, all of the vandalism that we create here, we could just march right on in there. Seconds after you've done whatever you've done. After whatever you've done with that while, you could go straight into the presence of God. Free access. And how does he greet us? With a gentle smile. Not with a tersed lip not with a clipboard ready to check things off to see if you're performing even enough to be in his presence or not, but he is engaged. He's happy to see you. He'd love for you to stay as long as you want to stay. He's excited to have you there. This access is free, but it didn't come cheaply bought either. It was free and costly at the same time. Think about the fact that God holds out his scepter of grace towards you because the rod of judgment fell on another. You're supposed to see that in this passage. Jesus is the one that stepped in, stepped into an executioner so that we would have free access. He is the one that made this possible. In 500 years after this whole little affair that we're reading about today, 500 years after this, Jesus would come from this very queen's decision and God's decision all at the same time. Not to just save the Jewish nation from another brutish king. That's not why Jesus came, but to save a different nation from sin and death, right? So this is pointing us to a gospel. And part of this beautiful gospel is we have free access to a better king, right? But what does all of that have to do with putting an idol down, right? 
the fact that we have access to a king, and the fact that that access is never going to be revoked, that there is an edict that sits and will never be changed. Really, the application is, is we make use of that free access, and instead of cowering, instead of trying to perform enough to impress this king who is watching us with a gentle smile, it's just to petition him. A little bit like Esther's doing, to request. And what do we request? A bigger, more beautiful view of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see God more beautifully, we see him bigger, we see his love for us more accurately, and it changes us. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to elevate Jesus in your heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to take Jesus and elevate him in your heart so you adore him more and your affections are nurtured for him more, that you worship him honestly, that you're fascinated with him, that you pray differently, you grow differently. Look at John 14. If you're not there or you can't get there quick, you can look up on the screen. We'll put John 14 up there. Chapter 20, yeah, 1425. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, Jesus says, but the helper, the helper. Some of your Bibles say advocate. Some of your Bibles say counselor. I won't pick a fight with any of those. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God's Spirit finds great joy in making Jesus beautiful in your eyes. He finds great joy in this. The Spirit of God reminds us of how deep and beautiful the love of God is for us. The Holy Spirit reminds us and shows us accurately where we have taken good things and made them ultimate and where we've taken ultimate Jesus and just made him a good thing, right? The Holy Spirit does all of this. I mean, listen, if we can't even see our idols. This is how much we owe to God. You can't even see your idols without the Holy Spirit showing you. You just don't have the ability to see it. Even in a service like this, or when you're on your own, and you start to catch a glimpse of an idol that you've been holding, that without it you're living a hell on earth, and you see it, and it pierces your heart, that conviction comes, that's the Holy Spirit. You can thank him for that. He did that. It's the first step of growth, too, by the way. It's the first step of growth. This is how God's people stand out in a world complete with an unending supply of idols for us to choose from. And just think as a missionary for a moment. Your neighbors at work, your peers, they all have a version of hell on earth that they fear. All of them do. And they see it as being right around the corner too, by the way. Very possible for them. They don't see it far off. They see it right down that street. They see it. They know what they have to have to be happy in this world, to make the hell on this earth go away so that they could live in a heaven on this earth. And if you touch that idol, you'll see it. If you see it fail in their life, you'll see it. You already know what it is, likely, right? A good missionary knows how to wrestle with idols. A good missionary knows because they've done it in their own life as well, right? Listen, if you are saved and you are a child of God in this room, there is room for you to repent today. There's room for me to repent. There's room for us to repent for listening to the sirens and believing that God is just insufficient, insufficient to bring us delight 
insufficient to enchant us and bring us wisdom, right? There's also room for us to repent and beg that we could become fluent in counsel, that we'd be good counselors around others who are struggling with this, and that God, just in his goodness to us, would surround us with people that would speak honestly with us. And friends, listen, if you're in here and you're just searching and you are not a Christian, you don't love Jesus and you're, you're feeling like he doesn't love you, one thing I think we both can agree on is this quest that you are on to become complete in this world and avoid hell on this planet is failing you. It's failing you, else you probably wouldn't be here this morning, right? We're looking for something, let's be honest. If you see anything in the story, see that there's a king who has in fact entered a hell on earth so that you wouldn't have to live there forever to win you his family. And he did so at a great cost. And he is the greatest good in a world of counterfeits. He is the greatest joy among a sea of shiny things. Right? His voice is the greatest, even among sirens that tell us that they will complete us. So take this day, this day, and turn from a life of chasing idols. And turn to a gospel, a gospel that is perfect for you and that you're perfect for. Hear me now. Jesus is perfect for you. And hear me just as clearly. You are perfect for Jesus. You're perfect for Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to pray for you. And we're going to move into the, the last part of our gathering. And that's not, that's not where you hear anyone talking to you. It's chance to engage God on what you've heard. So we'll be singing, they'll be praying. We have communion elements at the back that you can go by yourself, you could go with your family. Listen, if you're a Christian here today, we invite you to take communion with us. If you're not a Christian here today and you're just searching, don't worry about that stuff back there, right? That's something that we do as a church to commemorate what God has done for us and to commemorate another feast that we are being drawn to, right? I would invite you to consider Jesus. I would invite you to take him instead but I'd love to just pray for you as we go through this last part of our service. So Father, we thank you for being so and so gentle. And in your throne room, even right this moment, you have a gentle smile. And you are happy. You are glorified even when we turn to you. You are glorified when we enjoy you. So we love you and we thank you we glorify you with our praise and our worship. And Lord, we, let, let us be, by the power of your Spirit, a people about toppling idols today. Father, I know I could, I could speak on this topic 51 out of 52 weeks a year and it never not be a fresh need for us. So Father, we need your Holy Spirit to do this, to show us a bigger, beautiful, accurate view of who you are that our affections wouldn't compete anymore, but our, our affections for you would be nurtured. And Lord, that we would turn from the very things that promise, always over-promise, always under-deliver. These things that say that if we don't take them and worship them, we'll have hell here. Lord, that we are drawn to a different story where you stepped into a hell on earth. You stepped into this place. You stepped into the executioner so that we could have free access to a much better king. You are so good to us. You are so kind and courageous and gentle and thoughtful. And thoughtful. 
And Lord, you're long-suffering. That even amidst all of our mistakes, we drop so many passes, we make so many mistakes, and yet you still choose to be mindful of us, working in us, working around us, working through us. You're so brilliant. We love you. We worship you. We're very thankful, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.